So there is a Greek myth where Zeus empowers uh, Hephaestasis, the god of craftsmanship, to create the first woman. Her name, Pandora. Um, apparently Prometheus had stolen fire from heaven and ticked off Zeus, who took vengeance on him by presenting <clears throat> Pandora to Prometheus' brother, which of course wouldn't be all that interesting, except for the fact that a jar had been left in her care containing all of the world's evils in it. Uh, Pandora opens the jar and out comes death and decay and destruction uh, that get unleashed upon mankind. Well, the ancient Greek author who tells us this story, Hesiod, also includes a small detail uh, that gives us some insight into the way in which the Greeks thought about things. Because one of the items in the jar was hard labor. In other words, work itself was contained in the famous Pandora's box. I find it really interesting. If you look into a culture's stories and myths, you'll, you'll find out exactly what they believe about life. And for the Greeks, and of course for the Roman culture after it, um, work is an evil uh, to contend with, something to be endured as a hardship in life. And it just occurs to me in looking at those old stories that human beings have a strange relationship to work, don't we? And depending on your time in American history, uh, you'll realize that Western ideas of work are almost always negative. Uh, I remember my dad being regularly irritated with a 1970s economy as it was as terrible as it was. Uh, and in the 1980s, we were working for the weekend. Um, and even the present generation who has its own quirks about work actually may not be what you think. Uh, in our present day, there's a lot of traction being um, garnered for what's become known as hustle culture. Uh, I read one article that described it this way. Obsessed with striving, relentlessly positive and devoid of humor, and once you notice it, impossible to escape, rise and grind is both a theme of a Nike ad campaign and the title of a book by a Shark Tank shark. New media upstarts like The Hustle and 1.37 p.m. glorify ambition not as a means to an end, but a lifestyle. From this point of view, not only does one never stop hustling, one never exits a kind of work rapture in which the chief purpose of exercising or attending a concert is to get inspiration that leads back to the desk. This work philosophy has actually made its way back to pop culture in the rise of, uh, of a form of Greek philosophy known as Stoicism. Uh, guys like Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss um, and the social scientist Jordan Peterson have all begun to sort of try to convince this generation, especially men, uh, that virtue is an end in itself. Uh, nature really is all that there is and therefore the good life is really only being to be found in pursuing virtue. And by voluntarily experiencing deprivation of worldly comforts and kind of walking away from these arbitrary ideas of happiness and sadness as being the only motivators of human behavior. Well, the net result of this is these guys become these you know, power producers, uh, totally intense about their philosophy and their perspective. And of course, they can't help but brag about their latest natural supplements that they're taking to push their effectiveness beyond what they thought was possible. They want, to, they want to unlock their human potential through discipline and virtue. But my point is simply this, like human beings have not stopped thinking about work since the Garden of Eden, which is where I kind of want to take issue with this Greek myth of Pandora, because in the ancient world, hard labor emerged out of Pandora's box because it was a necessary evil. But in the Bible's presentation of history, man is given the commission to work before sin enters the world. 
in Genesis 2, 15, it says, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. But it's not until the next chapter, Genesis 3, where mankind falls into sin. So work can't be evil. And people who want to look at the world through the way the Bible presents it don't believe that work is a bad thing. In itself, work comes with blessing, and it's a joy. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, okay, yes, less. But in Genesis 3, Adam's work gets cursed, doesn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, while uh, Eve's curse is attached to her childbearing, Adam's curse is, a, is attached to his productivity. Instead of being something that's a blessing, it instead produces frustration uh, or thorns and thistles, as the text says. But what does that mean for us? Well, it means that, that our work is complicated. <laughs> it was created for good, but it was cursed. And so perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised that Paul, when he turns to this topic here in Ephesians chapter uh, uh, 6, that, that he continues to unpack what he started in Ephesians 5 about what it means to imitate God, that he sees that this plays out in these fundamental relationships like your marriage and your family. Well, now we find out that it also sort of attaches itself to our jobs, how we deal with our work. And what we're going to find is there's an amazingly profound and really distinctive approach to work uh, that I think still applies to a culture that's trying to find its way through a dizzying array of job searching and job satisfaction and productivity hacks. I think Paul's uh, teaching here is more than we could ever unpack at one time. But let's stick with this question. What is the deal with our work? I want to look at the context of Paul's teaching, the content of Paul's teaching, and then the confident, confidence in Paul's teaching. Let's look at that first in the context, because the first question that we have to entertain is one that is almost immediately asked by an upcoming generation that's already skeptical of the kind of authority that the Bible claims for itself. Here's how the objection goes. It's like, okay, here you have Paul uh, who is speaking directly to slaves and masters, but at no point does it occur to him to address the institution of slavery per se. How can, God, how can Paul claim to speak for God when he doesn't even address this horrific institution of, uh, of slavery uh, and to talk about this whole idea of owning people as property in the first place. Now look, you may or may not be asking this question, but I can assure you that it's objections like these that are being used by skeptics to walk away from the church. So let's ask the question, is that critique valid? Well, in order to sort of unpack that, we've got to go back and look at what this slavery in this ancient Near Eastern culture was really like and make some contrast with our associations with slavery from 19th century American chattel slavery. First of all, I think it needs to be said absolutely clearly that the Bible uh, absolutely condemns the enforced slavery of the 18th and 19th century among American colonial states. It was expressly forbidden in Scripture, and it comes in places like Exodus 21:16, where it pronounced literally the death penalty on kidnappers or what older translations called uh, man-stealing. It says in that passage, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. The slave trade in pre-industrial American economy was built upon man-stealing uh, and transportation of Africans across oceans for the ocean for trade. So, so there's no sense in trying to make the Bible uh, somehow sympathetic, much less permissive, of what happened in the early years of our nation's history. The question, though, that we have to ask, though, is this. Is that what's going on in Rome, Roman culture, at the time of Paul's writing? And the answer is, 
Not exactly. The first thing about that culture of slavery was slavery was, was almost universal during the time of Ephesians writing. Uh, one researcher that I read was estimating that there were close to 60 million slaves in the empire alone. And of course, they were the bulk of what we would know today as blue-collar workers. Uh, slaves were domestic workers and manual labor, laborers. They were educators. Um, believe it or not, they were doctors. Uh, they were teachers. They were administrators. And it turns out there were two ways to become a slave. The first one was if you were, uh, it became one if you were a citizen of a conquered nation. Uh, secondly, you became a slave if you acquired a debt that you couldn't pay. But what's really interesting about the literature of the day was how little anyone questioned the economic arrangement of it all. Um, it was just a fact of contemporary life to the Romans. Uh, so much so that one researcher said this, the institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as a part of the labor structure of the time that one cannot speak of the, of the, correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. This unquestioning acceptance of the slave system explains why Plato, in his plan of the good life as depicted in the Republic, didn't even mention the slave class. It was simply there. Now, what was a matter of some discussion was the treatment and characterization of slaves. You know, to the ancient world, the slave was property, uh, chattel. Uh, Aristotle was the one who was quoted as saying, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is a living slave. I mean, throughout every aspect of that society, slaves were dehumanized. Uh, they were whipped and imprisoned without representation. We've got records of them being beaten, having their teeth knocked out, even crucified. Um, but of course, as in any society, um, th those depictions were never pictured as absolute or universal. There was lots of evidence that there were some uh, slaves that worked as indentured, you know, for certain periods of time before they were released by their, for their obligations. Or they stayed with their families and homes that they were accustomed to serving because it was a good and noble life to lead. But it's into this institution that Paul is uh, speaking. And so we begin, I think, first of all, with the shock that Paul was addressing this underclass at all, much less with all this egalitarian fairness. In other words, Paul speaks to these people as if they were functioning and accepted members of the body of Christ, just like their masters. In fact, John Stott makes the point that each of these four verses where he addresses slaves, he speaks about Jesus in each one. Now, look at verse six, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, "...to serve not only by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man." The, the point that Paul's driving home is that a slave should, should look at their lot in life as if it's Christ-centered. Their old perspective uh, that they were languishing under, it's changed. Their horizons have broadened, and therefore the service that these, these people were, were rendering and performing was no longer just for their master to do something to keep them happy with you, but rather now it's done for Jesus, who has revealed to you his passionate delight in the cross. So what does all this mean? Well, simply stated, Paul is not mentioning slavery. Paul's not mentioning slavery as an institution in general, doesn't mean that he was condoning it, much less its abuse. Instead, what he does is, is he goes into the hearts of the players in that institution, and he calls for a transformed living. Because if you think about it, Paul's congregation in Ephesus, if they take his advice, 
And they begin to lead this spirit-filled lives as, as spiritually reborn Christians. The institution of slavery, it would have morphed into something very much like a healthy economy, devoid of any kind of dehumanization that often comes with institutions that grow corrupt like that. I think, frankly, it's irresponsible to walk away from the Bible just because Paul doesn't address the social norms of his day regarding class conflicts. Perhaps Paul did in other places on those topics, but here, for his favorite church, he introduces this principle that's so powerful and shattering that it would eventually undermine the very institution at its core. Why else is it in verse 9 that he mentions that there is no partiality with God? I think that's brilliant wisdom for people that are wondering what our first responsibility is to these institutional problems that we see even in the world around us. But that's another discussion for another time. Let's go to the second point. We've seen the context of Paul's teaching. Let's look at the content of his teaching. Um, look, from a religious perspective, the first surprise is that Paul is even talking about work. Um, you know, in, in other religious traditions, like I said, Paul, uh, work is an evil uh, that needs to be eradicated when we finally all get to heaven uh, in our imperfection. You know, work is one of the evils that flies out of Pandora's box. But in Christianity, work is an essential part of your humanity. And for that reason, your work is something that God cares about. You know, growing up in the uh, religious tradition of the South, there was a tendency, um, like I was talking about last week, to elevate jobs that are directly connected to church activities uh, as if they're kind of above all others. Um, you know, I, I used to, when I was in campus ministry, I used to talk to students all the time um, who, after they had graduated, had moved on to these other vocations. They reported feeling this really low-grade guilt uh, about the diapers they were changing, uh, about the business trips they were taking, even about the recreation they were engaging in, because it just wasn't like the vital ministry that they were doing when they were in college. But Paul's attention to this topic shows that actually all work, not just the ministry, is something that God cares about and He rejoices in. John Stott has this wonderful passage in his commentary on this where he says, Our great need is the clear-sightedness to see Jesus Christ and to set Him before us. It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were to be the honored guest. It's possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. I know Christians who fail to see this, and they always feel a little bit guilty because they didn't do well, they didn't do what Laura and Foster Gullet did by sort of shipping themselves off to be missionaries in, in Italy or someplace like that. Now, mind you, I actually have a strong suspicion that God actually indeed has called more of our congregation to foreign mission work than we know. Uh, but Paul's wisdom is to show us that all of our work is a mission field. You know, for so many years when I was in campus ministry, I would talk to students who were contemplating uh, summer service jobs uh, with ministries. You know, so many of these organizations offer these great opportunities to serve in God's kingdom in one place or the other during uh, summer times. But so often when they would talk about it, they would say things, and this is almost a quote, that they were like, well, you know, on the one hand, I had a choice between this summer internship and a law firm and God. And so I just chose God. Well, that's just some kind of rubbish thinking that really needs to be purged because 
There's nothing more spiritual about going and serving somewhere in the summer and working for the glory of God in that law firm or that accounting office or that engineering internship or that summer camp or whatever. So Paul's emphasis in this passage is on the quality of our work that gets done. Uh, Dive into what he says. His admonition there in verse 6 is to do our work, it says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Okay, that's a weird little word that we have translated eye service in the Greek. And interestingly enough, it only appears in the Bible here, uh, one place, which is kind of hard because you don't have another context uh, to compare it to. But basically the word really means, it means a service that requires watching. Okay, when the master is watching, you kind of work a little bit harder, don't you? Because you don't want to get in trouble. But of course, when they're not looking, we get a little sluggish, don't we? Well, Paul says, Christians don't do that. Because they know that all of their work is done for, the, for a boss uh, that is greater than the boss that they have. It's all done for the advance of the kingdom of God. Tony Morita says this, he says, This text shows us that we need to see Christ as our ultimate boss for whom we labor. Your job may stink, but the good news is that you can transfer masters without transferring jobs. All it takes is a perspective change. A change in your apprehension of the Lordship of Christ over every area of life. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson uh, tells this great story about his own conversion to Christianity, uh, where he was sitting and listening to a speaker at church who came to talk about his conversion while he was working in a typing pool. A typing pool. We don't have these things anymore, but can you imagine what kind of mundane work this must have been? You know, hundreds of typists sitting in a room just you know, tap, tap, tapping away all day long and the aching fingers and the sense of purposelessness of it all. But the man said that in that typing pool, there was an older lady who just was different. She seemed to take joy in what she did. Uh, and when they pressed her on why, she said it was because she was in service of a greater master. Well, that lady's witness eventually contributed to the man's coming to Christ. It was instrumental. And then that man eventually told that woman's story in church that led Sinclair Ferguson to being converted himself. Now Sinclair Ferguson is one of the greatest, foremost theologians of our day. Why? Because one little woman in a typing pool began to take joy in her work. Hey, what's the point? The point is you have no idea who may be impacted by your faithful service by doing nothing other than realizing that you're working for a different master. So that's the context of Paul's thinking and the content of Paul's thinking. Uh, Thirdly and lastly, I want to look at the confidence in Paul's teaching. Because look, take that last point there for just a second. Because I can hear you asking if you're following this, okay, so what you want me to do, Les, is to stop working to please my boss and work to please Jesus. But what confidence can I have that Jesus is going to be any more pleased with me than my earthly boss would have been? What the person is kind of saying is, is, so when I became a Christian, I was told that, you know, working for, you know, the sheer financial benefit of it all, like retiring early or uh, buying a boat or getting a swimming pool or whatever, that that was wrong. Uh, but the difference now is, is that I'm working, what, to make sure that I get to heaven so that I please Jesus? I, I heard uh, Nashville pastor uh, Sean, uh, uh, Scott Saul, excuse me, a few years ago, quote from a couple of surveys that he had read. The question on the first survey was, um, what do you want most in life? You know what the number one answer was? A good job. 
And then he quoted a second survey that asked the question, what are you most dissatisfied with in life? <clears throat> Something like 80% had reported, my job. What's the point? The point is that Christianity teaches that human beings are created to work. It's natural. It's created. It's an objective good. But the world is also a broken place because of mankind's fall into sin. And so Adam's curse was cursed with thorns and thistles uh, so that, the, that, that his work was always going to be frustrating. And it means that, that our work, therefore, is always going to be complicated. It's always going to be fraught with opportunities to complicate our lives. One of my favorite quotes from Henry Nouwen in his little book, Spiritual Direction, talks about the three lies of the false self. You ever heard this? He says there are three lies that you build your identity upon. One, I am what I do. Number two, I am what I have. And number three, I am what others think about me. The point is this. Your work has this ability to unveil something very profound about your spiritual state. Because in sin, man's work becomes a program of self-salvation. Your work becomes this, this false identity that conceals what God has actually made you to be. And until that conflict of identity gets resolved, your work is always going to be a tyranny and not this joyous adventure of discovery that God's made it to be. So the resolution, I think, though, gets put to us very succinctly there, if you, especially if you frame it in those terms. In places like Romans 4, look at what Paul says in verse 4 and 5. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now mind you, there Paul is talking about working for righteousness, to be, you know, to be pleasing to God. But isn't that what we're talking about? As long as your job is a sophisticated system of self-justification, it's going to kill you. You'll either be proud of how you've crushed the competition, uh, thereby wasting away your soul, or you'll slave away until one day you die at your desk. But Paul says this, he says, to those who do not work but believe, then their trust in Christ brings about a righteousness that they wanted from the beginning, that they were seeking in their work. In other words, Paul calls for us to work for our earthly bosses like we were working for him, for Jesus. But Jesus is not like our earthly bosses. Why? Because we don't work to please him. That's what Paul's saying. He's already been a plea, a, a, a pleased by his atonement for sin and his imputation of righteousness at the cross. In other words, we work for joy that we have in him not to get his acceptance out of him. That's different. It's night and day. And the transformation that has happened is in slaves and in bosses because we no longer have to prove ourselves by our work. In closing, I found a great story from the late theologian R.C. Sproul in his little book called Designed, uh, The Search for Dignity, sorry. Um, and he was discussing a phrase that he had heard from... Um, a guy named uh, 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 Wayne Alderson, who apparently was a pioneer in uh, management labor relations. And he was describing a term that Alderson used called dropping his head. 
um, it always occurred in a sentence like this. It was like, the supervisor comes in and drops his head. And at first, Sproul had no idea what it meant. But one day he said he was in a hospital. And he was standing out in the hallway, and he looked, at, looked up the hallway, and there was a man coming down the corridor pushing a cart of soiled laundry, a housekeeper. But he was cheerful enough, and as he walked up, he saw a nurse down the hallway. And the nurse, of course, just moments before had been very alert in the doctor's presence. But she saw this guy coming and walking forward. Well, just as the custodian kind of raised his head to sort of smile and make a, uh, let his face brighten to, to greet the, the nurse, at that same moment, the nurse tilted her head forward and stared at the floor as he walked by really briskly. And Sproul said, all of a sudden, the man pushing the cart, this custodian, his face lost all of its cheer. His pace became very slow, much slower, and he just continued on his way with his laundry. And suddenly Sproul understood what dropping the head meant. It was a refusal to acknowledge the other person. It was like saying that the other person was invisible, that they didn't count. Look, my premise this morning is that deep inside of our hearts is a fear that the God of the universe drops his head as we face him in our conscience or as we, as we face Him in our prayers. In other words, we begin to think, what if He treats me the way in which I treat others? But look, if there's anything that the gospel that Paul has been unpacking in the book of Ephesians is teaching, is trying to get us to ask, but what if He doesn't? What if Christ, uh, in Christ, Paul says, God has lifted up the light of His countenance on us and given us peace. How would that affect all of my relationships? And not only my relationships to my, my marriage and to my family, but also to this thing that occupies the bulk of my day, which is my work. What, what if I worked living in the spirit of His acceptance and His joy and maybe and maybe realize that all this time of my slaving, all of my overwork, all of my fretting, all of my exhaustion is coming from the fact that I've been working for something a little bit more than a paycheck, haven't I? I've been working for something that only the gospel can satisfy. That's what I think Paul is saying. And how much of a transformation would it be in us if we started to think that way about our jobs? That's something worth praying about. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then give us the grace to see very differently. Our jobs can be such a tyranny. Many of us now are struggling with them because oftentimes we don't like them. Oftentimes we feel stuck in them. Oftentimes we feel frustrated there because of antagonisms that come from every single quarter, it seems like. Father, they're just hard. But we do ask for your grace upon us that we might be lights to this culture, that we might not be obsessed by our work or completely distraught by it, but we might be like that lady in that typing pool just working away, tap, tap, tapping away in search of another kingdom, in a kingdom that you're building of people that don't work because they're, they're under tyranny, but work because they're under joy. Would you show us that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.